Hi, everybody. Uh, this is uh, Vitalik. Uh, welcome to my second uh, episode of my very first podcast. Um, I recorded the first one with uh, Oksana earlier today. And uh, right now, my guest is uh, one and only Doug Collins, uh, UX, as he um, calls him himself on Twitter. Uh, great UXer. Uh, a really great contributor to the Twitter UX community, a super smart guy. Uh, really uh, honored to uh, be connected with him. And uh, thank you, Doug, for uh, being uh, on the podcast tonight. Um, do you want to tell uh, everybody a little bit about yourself? Well, first, you're being way too kind to me, but I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, no, thanks for having me on. It's it's definitely it's great to be here. I'm uh, excited to uh, do a bit more podcasting. This is, uh, I, I think, my third recent podcast appearance. I was on with uh, Joe Natoli a while back and, and Kim Commando, and, and and now very happy to be here, too. Um, to give people a bit of background about me, I am a UX engineer uh, working in the fintech world. Uh, for what company exactly, uh, we're going to try to avoid saying because uh, working in the fintech world and being uh, regulated as a publicly owned company by the SEC makes things uh, interesting. <laughs> but if you really want to find out, uh, the information is out there. You can just ask me. I'm more than happy to talk about that. Uh, but yeah, started my uh, career in uh, UX uh, dang near a, a decade ago and uh, very happy to be uh, continuing on and, and uh Learning a lot and helping the people learn, uh, helping people learn as well. Awesome, awesome, great, uh, great intro. Uh, speaking of the uh, fintech, I used to work for Ameriprise Financial, uh, which I'm sure you have heard about. Um, so uh, I've been on that side of the um, equation. Uh, a lot of regulation, although uh, <laughs> I don't know if there's any, you know. Uh, strict regulation that might be tapping into kind of democracy, you know, <laughs> I think I should be able to uh, publicly tell people where I work uh, without any uh, repercussions. But um, no, that, that, that's great. Uh, so the um, the subject for today that uh, we decided to discuss with Doug is the uh, organizational model uh, around product development. And that's something that um, has been interesting to me for quite a while and uh, I have my own thoughts uh, and uh, we'll be really happy to discuss that with Doug today because he um, has a lot more experience than I do. Uh, I mean, uh, just for the record, I never held uh, an official title uh, UX you know, designer or UX engineer um and like i've never had the word uh you know that abbreviation ux in my job titles through uh, throughout my career uh, but i've been um in the equation uh in terms of uh i i was a project manager i drove projects end to end in terms of uh, complete product development uh, when you know people tell me we need to build this and i uh, go and talk to a uh, business sponsor and uh, work with the developer and then work with the users so kind of end to end uh, but uh, those were you know smaller projects some were some other stuff but uh doug since you have a lot more of that really direct, uh, you know, hardcore um, experience in the uh, corporate world around uh, product development and UX, uh, can you tell us uh, whether you can, uh, I mean, feel free to use your current uh, job as an example or a previous one. Uh, 
what does the current organizational model look like today around the product development in terms of, you know, UX designers, developers, business analysts, uh, project managers, product owners, product managers, uh, who reports to whom, uh, why uh, do you think uh, there are some uh, opportunities for improvement in this model? Maybe, uh, you know, things were set up uh, years ago for many industries so a lot of them right. are uh, pretty uh, uh, ripe for disruption so uh, uh, feel free to, uh, to tell us a little bit more about uh, your experience and uh, an example sure sure well you know the first thing i'll say and, and you know kind of off the topic is don't sell yourself short you know a lot and you're you're quite good at what you do so and, and you know i think that's kind of something that as as uxers we're all sometimes a little bit uh uh, tempted to do is to uh, kind of uh, doubt our own skills or doubt where we're coming from. And, and you know, it, you know, for you and, and then also for anyone else that's listening to this and needs to hear this, uh, you know, stay confident, stay strong and and know what you're good at and, and be proud of it. So um, but yeah, no, definitely. You got nothing to worry about, man. And, and <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. so don't, Thanks, don't worry I about already that. feel like 5% more confident. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get you the rest of the way there. All right. <laughs> uh, and, you know, as far as the, um, you know, the organizational pieces and the, um, uh, you know, kind of where UX sits, one of the things I really like about being a UX professional is that we kind of sit in the center of everything, right? We're really the only group within the company that kind of talks to everyone. We talk to our business partners. We talk to our developers, product managers. We talk to the the users and our clients. Um and it really gives us a unique perspective, right? Because we sit in sort of the the center of everything, kind of the the middle of the spider web, and get to feel all those uh, little vibrations coming from different directions. And it's it's gives us a great opportunity to kind of observe and communicate and uh, facilitate you know, a lot of that uh, sort of internal communication and and uh, organization pieces that uh, sometimes might get lost. So, you know. That's given me a great perspective. I think, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head. There are a lot of different categories that uh, kind of people fall into these days, whether it's, uh, you know, product management, whether it's development, whether it's just uh, sort of business stakeholders, customers, clients. Um, and, you know, we see things uh, really moving towards the the agile frameworks. You know, it seems like it's you're, you're very hard pressed to find anybody that isn't running some form of, of agile at this point. Um, my, uh, you know, personal experience has been mostly in a, in a Kanban environment. Um, and, and kind of the problems that I've seen with, with UX from a perspective of, uh, you know, agile methodology and kind of where things go is just that it's, there's kind of this temptation, especially for companies that don't have uh, a very developed design or user centered design or, or user experience sort of culture. Um, to sort of keep that as an afterthought. And what ends up happening a lot of times is that uh, problems that should be researched and problems that, that need some time to come up with a valid solution from a user experience perspective end up getting handed to the UX team. And they say, you say, okay, well, how long of a turnaround time they need? And go, eh, we gotta need this tomorrow or in a couple of days. And really, it's something that you should be looking at for, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. And, and certainly, you know, that, that happens where where I am currently. But I've also heard that feedback from 
and quite a few UXers who are uh, you know joining those those types of young uh, sort of culture companies. I think the great uh, opportunity there um, is to kind of push that forward um, and to get uh, the organization thinking about uh, kind of their priorities, their backlog a little bit sooner um, so that uh, UX has some time to not only come up with the design that uh, might possibly work, but to study and test that design. You know, it's we're kind of in an interesting spot. Uh, from a professional perspective, and a lot of what we do is is creative, but a, a lot of what we do uh, should be very data-driven, very feedback-driven. And if we're given the time to only do one of those two pieces, a lot of times it's the creative piece that gets done and, and not the data-driven piece. Uh, so having that extra time, being able to push things out and get ahead of the curve really makes a big difference um, from a UX perspective, and uh, you know we've seen it have a, a big impact in a lot of my projects and, and a lot of projects I've uh, discussed with other UX professionals. Do you think that the well, we can use your role, um, UX engineer, um, because you know whether it's UX designer or UX engineer or UX architect, uh, there's, you know, different variations and probably depending on the company and on the project, uh, some um, responsibilities uh, or scope of uh, uh, skills might vary. But uh, if you want to use your role specifically, do you think your role is structured uh, correctly or if you were uh, in the position to uh, create your own uh, UX engineer uh, role, would you change anything um, from what it currently is? Oh man, UX has a mountain of job titles right now, does it not? I mean, it seems like every UX job posting you see out there has a different title, um, which is, it's problematic, um, I think, because uh, a lot of times the titles have become so convoluted based off of what the actual responsibilities are that, that they really don't mean anything. And the worst offenders are the ones that you know, will post a job with the you know, UX in the title um, and then has you know, absolutely nothing to do with user experience in the job description. Um, there was like, one... like, like UX accountant? <laughs> yeah, like UX accountant. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Uh, I haven't seen that one yet, but I have seen... Uh, <laughs> There was a um, uh, job posting that uh, I had stumbled across. Somebody had sent to me, um, I think it was last week, for a it was a UX UI developer uh, role. And reading through the job posting, it was all about you know Java, JavaScript frameworks. Um, it was all about backend pieces. Uh, literally nothing to do with design, user experience, or user interface. It was all a strictly developer position, why they threw UX or UI mm -hmm. in there and the word design in there is still beyond me. <laughs> so I say all of that uh, to, preference, uh, to preface my answer that uh, job titles don't mean as much in the UX world right now as they probably should. In my own job title, UX engineer, um, I don't really do what that job sort of job title sort of implies. The UX engineer Normally, you would think of somebody that has the user experience skills who also does some coding work and, and plays uh, you know, in the code base and, and uh, contributes in that way, which I have those skills, but I don't do that. My, uh, my job is very uh, much uh, design related. I, I don't do the coding pieces, even though I have those 
HTML and CSS and JavaScript and you know frameworks and WordPress and et cetera, et cetera skills. Um, I, I'm really focused on the design pieces and the research pieces. Um, so, uh, you know, to kind of you know put that all in perspective, if I could, you know, really rename myself, um, especially I'm a, you know, that's the other thing is that at my current role, I am a team of one, right? So mm -hmm. the, there's no other UXer uh, in my group. Um, it's just me. There's no other design professional in my group. It's just me. So, so your title um, should say the UX yeah, engineer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get the job title of UX Army of One? Is that uh, is that up, <laughs> out there? Sounds legit. Um, <laughs> yeah, we can totally go with that. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, if, if if I were to sort of write my uh, sort of job description and job setup for that, it would really do more uh, along the lines of research, um, you know, running the UX test, uh, running the focus groups, getting in front of uh, our, our users and working with uh, our internal users as well um, to get that all set up and, and really uh, get a good idea of sort of where our project is, uh, where our product is headed, um, what we're doing right and what we're not doing right. Um, which really should be, you know, the focus of of user experience design in general, right? We want to figure out, you know, what the problems are and how we can solve those problems. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so this is in terms of description. Um, but if you had, um, if you were in a position to modify your job in terms of uh, either removing some responsibilities that you think you should not be doing. Uh, or adding uh, responsibilities that you think you should be doing instead of somebody else. Right. And uh, number three, authority over making certain uh, decisions. So in, in terms of those three points, uh, would you, if you had the power, would you change anything uh, about this uh, role that you have? Yeah, you know, I don't think, I don't think at my current role I would change too much, um, except for maybe removing some responsibilities. Uh, being the sole uh, designer of any color, let alone just UX designer, I'm, I'm asked to do a lot of things that aren't necessarily what we'd consider related to traditional UX design. So I do a lot of, um, say, print design for our statements, um, or I'll do, um, you know, even design for our company intranet and that sort of thing. So it's it's uh, anything that needs sort of a creative flair to it, um, whether it's uh, I've created challenge coins, uh, which are kind of the coins that you give out for, um, you know, completing a task or doing something special. I've created those. I've done, you know, internal flyers and, you know, did all the the artwork and everything for our intranet. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's that's a bit outside what I do. Uh, I enjoy it and certainly is fun, but it's uh, maybe takes a bit away from my focus. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, as far as as adding in pieces, um, I. I you know, UXers always say they want a seat at the table, right? We want to be involved in the decision-making process. Um, mm -hmm. and, and oftentimes, though, we forget where that table is, and it's usually in a conference room uh, for a couple of hours <laughs> somewhere. Um, I, I always feel like, you know, the sooner I can be involved in the, in the decision-making process, the sooner I can be involved um, in sort of the, the, the business decisions and the vetting process and, and the whys behind what we're doing, the more effective I could be. So if I were to add anything, maybe that would be a you know an earlier involvement in that process. 
Um, but also, you know, being a team of one, I'm, I'm granted a lot of authority. You know, it's, it's something where I can stop, you know, features from going through if they aren't quite right. Uh, or I can ask our developers to go back and make changes if we need to make changes. And, and there's certainly uh, a lot of responsibility that comes with that that I'm very comfortable with. And I think that in my current role, uh, my, my company has done a very good job of sort of vesting that responsibility in me. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's, uh, that's really great to hear. Um, and, uh, so in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, that ability to, you know, stop, uh, from, from going into production or, uh, something like that, uh, do you, do you experience any conflicts with uh, people who have, uh, you know, more authority over the product, uh, whether it's the product manager or product owner, or maybe uh, developers have, you know, uh, like in informally too much power just because, you know, they are a really good uh, high paid developer or, you know, been there longer than you have. Um, and, uh, you know, due to politics, for example, you are not able to push some of your uh, decisions, like, you know, something that you truly believe in, like, you know, that should not be there. But then the product manager says, yes, it should be there. Uh, so um, any uh, moments like that in your work that uh, you wish that, you know, uh, that you just had, you know, more authority over uh, such, such uh, decisions? Well, you know, I think that there's always going to be competing opinions, right? Mm -hmm. And when, when I talk about being a data-driven uh, profession and a data-driven piece, um, ideally that's, that's where you want to be from a UX perspective, is making your decisions not just off of best practices or what you feel like should be happening or what sort of the internal consensus is, but you should be driving your designs off of uh, what your data tells you, whether that's uh, analytics that you're gathering from your site or analytics uh, or data that you're gathering uh, from uh, customer interviews or observations. Um, so I find that when I have the opportunity to do that research and to put that that work in ahead of time, uh, and, and I'm able to back up what I'm saying uh, with those hard numbers, uh, very rarely is there any conflict. Um, a lot of times people just want to know uh, mm -hmm. why why it is that you're doing something and you know kind of what the thought process behind that is uh, it's very easy sometimes to uh, especially when you're a team of one and you don't have anybody else really uh, who does what you do uh, to kind of bounce ideas off or talk with or, or kind of work with it's very easy to to kind of forget that that sometimes people just want to know right <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of the other side of things is if you can talk with people um, and kind of explain your thought process and explain where you're coming from uh, very rarely is there you know, a whole lot of issues that way either. So I, I wouldn't say that there's a lot of problems with that. I think that uh, my current environment is one that's uh, very communicative. Um, and, you know, there are always going to be competing personalities. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you have to necessarily come to conflict. Um, and uh, that's one thing that I pride myself on is is uh, sort of the the peaceful resolution of things, right? <laughs> uh, so being able to explain myself, backing up my decisions, and and building that consensus is a big part of what I do, and that that goes back a bit too as well to you know, sitting in the center of everything, right? We're in the in kind of that middle spot where we can say to our developers, well, we're doing this because you know our business partners are saying that they want X, Y, and Z, and our research shows A, B, and C. So that means that we're, you know, 
coming up with solution Q or whatever it might be. <laughs> if, right. you, if you catch my drift, we're able to kind of combine all those pieces together um, and, you know, for one group or another, put it in a language that they can understand. Yeah, I mean, data-driven decisions uh, are, are really awesome, and uh, it's really great when you have uh, data. In, in a lot of cases, uh, though, especially when you build uh, brand new products or, uh, you know, creating brand new categories, for example, you know, iPhone, right? I mean, Steve Jobs did not have any data. I mean, nobody, probably not a single person on Earth uh, besides Steve Jobs uh, thought that, you know, we need a computer phone that would do so many things that it does today, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> right. Steve, Steve just kind of sit down and envision that, use the zero data and just build that uh, beautiful product. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are um, different situations. Um, and uh, w when you are improving an existing product and using a lot of data from, uh, you know, tons of users that are using the current version, then obviously it's a really, really um, awesome uh, opportunity. But yeah, I mean, uh, I'm glad you are uh, the guy who, uh, you know, resolves everything uh, peacefully. <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of like you and me inside, right? Right, uh, right. <laughs> let's not go outside, especially now it's uh, winter and stuff like that. Oh, man, you uh, don't want to be outside right now. It is way too cold out there. Oh, okay. Well, I can uh, bet you that it's uh, colder here in Minnesota. Uh, temperature is dropping like rock. It should be like nine or eight degrees in a couple hours. Yeah, that's that's colder than what it is here in Denver. I think we're in the uh, I think we're in the lower thirties. So that's uh, yeah, lower. This, this is summer. This is summer for us. Yeah. Well, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We, everything, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? You know, it's easy for me to go out and say, oh, I don't want to be out there. But as much as I don't want to be out there in, you know, 30 degree weather, I don't want to be out there in nine degree weather either. So, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, so um, I know that you are uh, very passionate uh, and probably, you know, obviously spent a lot of time uh, working with uh, on accessibility for mm -hmm. UX design. Um, right. Could you could you tell us a little bit more about that? I uh, I honestly haven't really heard much about that uh, area. Uh, I know that this exists. Uh, I I think I got familiarized uh, with that uh, when I um, got my iPhone for the first time, you know, many years ago. And then when I went into settings, I uh, saw those accessibility features. Uh, I think that's what when it actually occurred to me that oh, you know there's there are things like that which i didn't even know um that they existed um could you tell us a little more whether uh you guys are implementing anything in your uh products or uh from your uh, previous experience right yeah so accessibility design is really just designing for people that might have some sort of disability whether that's um you know a, a physical disability um you know a, a cognitive disability um, you know, uh, maybe vision impaired, maybe hearing impaired, uh, maybe a learning disability. Um, and, and, you know, keeping those design sort of best practices in mind when you're going about creating new designs. Um, it's one of those pieces that uh, definitely has uh, a UX part to it, um, because there is certainly quite a bit from development perspectives uh, and coding that goes on behind the scenes. Uh, that allows uh, for good accessibility design, but um, you know, for instance, uh, you know, coding links and images appropriately so that they show up correctly on uh, screen readers uh, for those who might be visually impaired. 
Um, but there's also mm -hmm. quite a bit that we can do um, as UXers uh, to make sure that our visual designs uh, are, you know, uh, sort of adhering to accessibility standards. There is a group uh, called uh, WCAG, which is the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. They are at version 2.1 right now, which outlines uh, sort of the, the standard for all accessibility across uh, the Internet. Um, and they'll do things uh, like talk about, uh, say, for instance, if you have a video, um, you want to make sure that that video is usable uh, by someone who would say, for instance, be hearing impaired, right? So having some sort of subtitles available, um, whether they're you know closed captioning that you can turn on or off, um, or whether it's you know uh, incorporated subtitles that are actually part of the video, um, part of the video file that you've actually hard coded in there. Um, that will always show up. You want to make sure that you have that. And there might be best practices about when you do one or the other, uh, but you want to make sure that you have that there. And, you know, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that people hear about accessibility and they think, well, how many of our users are disabled, right? How many people are actually have an accessibility issue? Um, one thing, um, you know, kind of from the from the start of that is that about eight to nine percent of your users uh, just based off of the percentage of population are going to be colorblind uh, coming to your website so right off the top you already have an accessibility concern for you know eight nine percent of your users wow. um, and then you also got to think about that the permanently disabled if you look at the population of permanently disabled in the world is about 1.3 billion people um, so quite a large number just from a permanent disability perspective. But then you also what, think about... What's the, what's the definition of the permanent disability? So anyone that... Uh, you would think of a permanent disability of anyone that has any sort of permanent physical, uh, mental, um, uh, or, or cognitive uh, learning disability um, you know, within that group. So anyone that might require some extra assistance to use your site. Um, mm -hmm. So when you look at that from that perspective, you know, that's, you know, that's the permanent uh, population. But then you also have to think about the fact that we are all uh, disabled from some perspective in our everyday lives. Consider that, you know, my wife, uh, when she's picking up my one and a half year old son, she's got, you know, my son in one arm. She only has use, functional use of, you know, one arm while she's doing that. So for that moment, in that instant, she's just as physically impaired as somebody who was born with just one arm. Um, or wow. if you're thinking about, you know, somebody who's in a construction zone, who's, you know, maybe, you know, can't hear um, and trying to, you know, digest some sort of video file. They're as functionally deaf as somebody who was born without hearing. Um, so when you start to think about that and the fact that we all go through accessibility concerns on our day-to-day -day lives, um, accessibility takes a much more immediate and impactful uh, role in our in our design and, and becomes one of those things that that really shouldn't be an afterthought but should be at the forefront of what we do. Well, I'm, I mean, this is pretty. Uh, that's kind of a revelation for me, um, especially those examples that you gave. You know, your wife with a kid uh, only has one um, hand um, to work with. Can, can you uh, can you maybe give an example of uh, you know? Not not a challenge, but you know, a, a task that you guys had to solve for uh, an accessibility issue, and uh, how you tested that, and how uh, the results turned out to be. If you have a handy example, I understand. Yeah. 
So one of the things that I always try and keep in mind because it's um, uh, you know, one of the ones that seems to come up the most and it's one of the ones that uh, has a larger impact on an audience in general is uh, sort of color contrast ratios, right? Uh, we look to have contrast ratios uh, between, say, text and background colors of a, of a certain ratio depending upon the size of the text um, and how it's used. Uh, we also look at having a difference between colors that we use within our site um, to uh, allow for somebody who maybe has monochromacy, well, which is um, they can only see in black and white, uh, essentially, uh, or mm. really more common shades of gray. <laughs> but, mm. uh, uh, you know, sort of keeping that all in mind um, so that there's enough contrast between all the colors that are being used, your text, your background colors, and any sort of highlighting that might go on. Uh, one of the difficulties that we were just uh, tasked uh, with uh, was designing a table uh, with row highlight colors, um, two separate row highlight colors and a uh, background color and then also a selected row highlight color uh, that were uh, all accessibility friendly um, and all uh, sort of able to be um, sort of used for their purpose without going too much into effect. It was essentially a giant table of data um, where one row could be selected. Um, but we also, there were uh, relationships of groups of rows with one another and particularly um, kind of a master and subordinate relationship with a row and row and a number of rows behind that. So the, the challenge then was really to come up with a color palette uh, that matched our current brand standards that had four different shades that we could use in it, a background color, a master color, a subordinate color, and a highlight color uh, that were all accessibility friendly um, and didn't require sort of that uh, jump away from our brand standards, uh, which our brand standards when they were created uh, were not created with accessibility in mind. <laughs> so it became- Yeah, I was just gonna uh, say those, those pesky marketing people, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they obviously did not uh, did not take that in, into uh, into account. So what we were able to do though is there is a tool out there called uh, WebAIM.org, um, which uh, has a color contrast checker uh, available in it. So we were able to kind of take our brand standards, grab a number of different colors from our brand standards, and sort of plug this plug them into this contrast checker. Uh, to make sure that our text would be readable um, and that uh, the ratio between these colors were was also uh, enough where somebody who is visually impaired could easily tell the difference between them. Um, the great thing about this uh, particular contrast checker is it will give you a pass fail. So it will say whether or not, you know, you don't have to do any, you know, parsing of the data to figure out, okay, well, it gives you a number, but what does that number mean? It will tell you, yes, the contrast here is good enough or no, it's not. Um, so that's sort of one of those tools that that uh, I commonly employ, and we were able to find uh, uh, somehow a color palette that worked, um, and mm -hmm. just uh, just implemented that yesterday. Now that said, there's still some concern, and this was one of those things where I didn't really get enough time to to do a lot of research other than checking contrast ratios on it. Um, that this might not uh, uh, you know fulfill the need that we're going to to use. So along the lines of data driven design. Our goal is going to be to get it into our, uh, you know, sort of QA version of our of our build and do some testing with our clients to see whether or not this actually works. Uh, there's a chance we might have to go back to the drawing board, 
sometimes that's harder for our development team to swallow than it is maybe for me, who's who's more used to an iterative process. Uh, but to have that data-driven design and say, hey, you know, we put this in, we thought it would work, and you know, either hey, it's great, or you know, the response wasn't good, and we need to go back and figure out something else, uh, was a big part of that. That's uh, that's a good example. That's a really great example. Uh, actually, reminds me of. Uh, uh, my Google Maps uh, uh, recent experience, uh, which was not really good. Uh, we were looking for a new house recently, uh, just you know to kind of uh, thinking uh, to upgrade. Uh, luckily, we did not uh, proceed with that, uh, but uh, we we almost made an offer on the house. And when we uh, look for a house, we do our homework really, really uh, thoroughly because you know we we bought our first house, and obviously we learned a lot. Uh, what we did not look at and things like that. So mm -hmm. one of our uh, like you know complete deal breakers uh, was to not have any, any rail track um, near our house, like you know within a reasonable distance. Right. And uh, that's the first uh, thing that we uh, looked at before we even uh, went and looked at the house. And uh, we I, I looked and I didn't see that. And then when we went there, uh, my wife said, well, let's, you know, drive down uh, a little bit farther just to see what the you know neighborhood looks like. And uh, like literally one football field away from the house, there's a rain track and and and. Uh, and the intersection. So that's where they would, you know, hunk uh, the hell out of this earth, right? <laughs> and right. like, how how did I miss that? And so I went back to Google Maps and I had to zoom in to finally see that rail track because the contrast between the track itself, which, you know, I would assume it should have been like completely black or very close to black. Um, it was very light gray and on a pretty grayish type of background i i just didn't see that it's it was so ridiculous that uh like you know i i i was looking for it like i, I was looking for rain tracks and i didn't find that uh but we uh, found that um in real life um yeah and uh actually uh the um it's not accessibility uh related but um i kind of remembered about another example from a mirror prize when uh, I worked on the project, um, when we try to analyze the number of errors that advisors uh, make uh, when they uh, place trades, or I think uh, they used uh, Thomson uh, Reuters uh, platform as the backend mm -hmm. um, for the trades and you know brokerage accounts, and. Uh, they made so many errors because the interface was so bad. Uh, like on one screen, uh, they can show you dollars. On the other screen, they can show you number of shares. And yeah. we had uh, quite a few uh, really, really large, like very costly errors, um, especially if the price goes down when you buy something that you didn't intend to buy. I mean, in some cases, the price would go up and, you know, a mirror price would keep the difference or something like that. But right. in most cases, the prices would would go down. And, and basically, uh, we were trying to look for a kind of a, a Band-Aid type of solution because um, they tried to 
plug in all kinds of warnings, right? Like, you know, in red letters, you know, uh, you are about to place a trade for, you know, X amount of dollars for X amount of IBM shares and uh, things like that. But, you know, uh, like uh, my friend used to say, people might be giving, you know, children away if they don't read the stuff, right? They just push the button. So, and uh, what we tried to do, obviously redesigning the interface, you know, the entire screen would not be, you know, even feasible at that point. Um, especially with the fact that um, that platform was also used by, you know, Wells Fargo and you know, some other uh, large clients. And what we were proposing uh, was to uh, place the, uh, the dollars inside the button itself, because that's pretty much the only and the last place that uh, the advisor would look. Um, because, you know, they, they just place trades, uh, clients call them, like, you know, buy me X amount of Apple shares or whatever, and they just kind of stack them up uh, until, you know, 250, uh, 255 or 3.55 Eastern time, uh, five minutes before market close, and then they try to kind of jam uh, them in. And so we were trying to propose to plug that ballpark dollar amount because, you know, people think in dollars, right? Well, I know right. you, you, you buy, you intend to buy like, you know, 500 uh, Microsoft shares, but you are still thinking in dollars. So, um, and uh, as hard as we were trying to push that, uh, I, I think Thompson said, you know, Wells Fargo compliance department um, did not approve that because, you know, it's not the real amount. It will never be that amount because, you know, you kind of go up or down order book and you just, you know, you never end up with that kind of notional value that is uh, first displayed to you uh, before you place the trade. Um, but yeah, it was a real problem, a uh, real UX problem. And uh, we were offering some kind of a, a Band-Aid uh, solution that would uh, for sure prevent um, uh, advisors from, you know, losing so much money. Uh, but uh, that I just never worked. And uh, uh, I, I just remembered the... Uh, about this example, when we talked about accessibility, obviously it's not accessibility uh, related, but you know it's it's kind of a disability for the advisor to <laughs> have that really bad designed, uh, badly designed interface, uh, where you know on one screen you would have a number of shares in that spot, and on the other screen you would have number of dollars, and people just get confused and they just don't double check. So yeah. Um, that that kind of stuff is uh, is really important, but uh, that that uh, example um, and the description of uh, your experience with accessibility is actually uh, pretty interesting. I, I did not know that you know eight or nine percent are just disabled by uh, you know have have a disability uh, just from the get or something like that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's and it's it's one of those things that that really adds up when you think about it, and and. You know, the the thing is, and, and kind of to your point about, you know, that your second uh, point not necessarily being related to accessibility is that when you start to keep something like accessibility in the front of your mind, um, it, it leads to a lot of other thoughts and, and a lot more attention to detail. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things that uh, pays dividends far beyond uh, just the simple practice of, uh, you know, keeping those best practices of accessibility design in mind. And it's one of those things that I, I feel very passionately about, too. You know, for my for my own shameless plug, I have a class on uh, Skillshare for uh, that talks about accessibility design that uh, you know, I feel very uh, passionate about uh, sharing to the point where I make that class free for, for anybody that wants to take it. So, mm -hmm. 
you know, it's it's one of those things that uh, that really adds up once you start to pay attention to it. Awesome. Um, what uh, what what are your plans? Uh, are you like right now you're in the current role uh, and, you know, it sounds like you, you like what you do, but like if you were in the ideal world where you could uh, pick a company and pick a role and pick a, a product, uh, more importantly, uh, what would you absolutely uh, love to do if it would be different from what you're currently doing? Oh, man. Well, so uh, back in 2004, Um, I was working with the Broncos. Um, it was uh, the Denver Broncos uh, football mm -hmm. club. Um, it was my college uh, internship. Uh, I worked there for a season, which was great. Uh, really wonderful uh, experience for me. Being a, a Denver kid and growing up uh, uh, you know, a Broncos fan, it was a big deal for me to get that internship and, and be on the team. My office was in Dove Valley right above... Uh, where all the players, uh, you know, lockers were, and I was interacting with the players and coaches. And wow. accident, I accidentally took Mike Shanahan's luggage uh, on one trip, but that's a, <laughs> that's a story for another time. But, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, uh, I've always had that sports bug in me. Um, I didn't study to be a UX professional. I studied to be a, a sports journalist, and, and that mm -hmm. obviously, obviously didn't work out. But, uh, you know, <laughs> If I could uh, be in any industry, I'd love to be, uh, you know, in that uh, sports entertainment industry uh, doing, uh, you know, design and, and UX uh, work through there. I think uh, it's one of the very disconcerting things when you look at the world of sort of the, the big four sports, um, you know, football, baseball, basketball, hockey. And mm -hmm. even if you want to extend into that soccer and, and, you know, you can kind of keep going down the list, NASCAR and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. is that. Most of the major uh, branded apps, you know, for instance, the NFL app, uh, really aren't that great. Um, there's well, a I, lot. I, hate it. I deleted it permanently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, 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 I did too. Um, I, I find myself bringing it back on occasionally because it's sometimes uh, I think that's the only way I can watch what I'm doing when I'm out and about. But the app almost never works, so it's, it becomes kind of a problem to even do that. But uh, there's an opportunity there uh, that I think the leagues are um, a, a bit ignorant to and, and haven't shown a willingness to invest in. And my ideal role would be to, um, you know, be a, a champion of UX and design and, and, and user-centered design uh, for the applications and websites of one of those major sports leagues. But uh, You know, those roles are few and far between um, mm -hmm. and kind of like when I worked with the Broncos and, and kind of wrap things up there, I realized that jobs with, uh, you know, NFL teams are few and far between. Right. Uh, so who knows if that'll ever come open. But, uh, you know, there's uh, yeah, there's always a right time and a right place for something. So I guess I'll have to keep my eyes out. Yeah, it's a it's a great industry to be in, and uh, I'm I'm really you know passionate about that as well. I, I love football and uh, and basketball, um, not not as much as of a hockey fan, uh, surprisingly, because I'm from Russia, from Siberia, you know, with a lot of uh, <laughs> ice and snow, and you know, Russian hockey team obviously is not the last one in the world, um, but uh, somehow uh, I just you know when I came to the U.S. Uh, 
football just fascinated me like such a beautiful and strategic game and things like that obviously i don't appreciate uh, all the violence and all those you know brutal hits and things like that but uh, just the game itself is uh, is pretty uh, beautiful um and to your point uh with the apps i actually thought about that and uh, my gut feel i, I could be 100 percent wrong but I just think they uh, they have all the money. I mean, they, they swim in cash, but they, they just don't care. They are a monopoly. So, uh, like, where else would you go, right? I mean, you can go on, you know, Yahoo Sports or whatever to check some scores or, you know, things like that. But they pretty much control the content. Uh, if you want to watch the game highlights, uh, I mean, that's pretty much the only thing that I do uh, on the apps uh, or on the websites because I don't use the apps anymore because they just, you know, uh, suck so bad. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I just check the scores and uh, um, uh, watch the highlights, but they just make it so painful, uh, especially with... Uh, ads that would you know roll for 30 minutes but then something would go wrong and it would reset and roll again for 30 minutes before you actually get to the highlight which is you know one minute so you watch one minute of uh, um, advertising um, and then one minute of the actual content but right. yeah i mean I, I thought about that and i just thought that they if they had competition like you know nfl 2 uh, or nfl west or nfl east right right um, and you know the other app would be just so much better and more pleasant maybe they would you know see that as a motivation to actually do things better but uh being a monopoly kind of um that they kind of expose themselves in that uh, i don't know if you have a similar opinion or yeah well i mean you know one thing you have to realize is that monopoly is never going away um you know the you know, as far as you know baseball basketball football Right. Um, you yeah. know, it's it, it, we're we're stuck with that, and that's you know <laughs> just just the way it's always going to be uh, at this point. And I think you have to kind of accept that. But uh, you know, at the same point in time, um, I, I think where the disconnect is is that you're right. The the willingness to invest isn't there, and I think the willingness isn't there because the value isn't seen. Right? They they don't understand how that uh, really grows and builds uh, fan interaction and perspective, um, you know, uh, from the ground up. Um, you know, I, I think these leagues are, are very invested in sort of the traditional media structure of, you know, television and, and radio broadcasts that they're just starting to embrace um, some of these new media things, even though back in 2004, when I was working for the Broncos, uh, you know, there was that, uh, you know, a talk of that drive there, but really a, a lot hasn't changed. Um, it's still very, uh, still very much the same uh, from a content perspective, from a uh, usability perspective as it was, you know, you know 14, 15 years ago uh, at this point in time. So yeah, I think we're... The change will have to come uh, at some point in time is is when that tipping point is reached where people are not uh, digesting their media through broadcast television, through cable, but but purely online. And I think that point is coming sooner than than most of the major sports realize. 
Um, and you've started to see, you know, NFL broadcasting some games on Twitter or Yahoo or that's that sort of thing. And some of the uh, the networks, uh, you know, sort of getting their own apps and, and, and working their own routes there. The realization is starting to come, but I think it's going to hit, uh, you know, these leagues harder than than what anyone is prepared for. And it will be a crisis uh, mm-hmm. uh, when that does happen. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how those leagues react. Uh, but they're going to have to go from zero to 60 uh, uh, pretty much overnight. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Or at least from zero to one, like Peter, Peter Thiel said, right? Yeah. <laughs> the first step's uh, the hardest, right? <laughs> right. Um, do, do you, by any chance, know uh, Gary Vaynerchuk? Uh, name does not ring a bell with me. Oh, okay. Um, uh, great person. Just, you know, look him up. He He's such a visionary in marketing and uh, uh, he's an investor, entrepreneur. Uh, so what he said, uh, and he's been saying that for a long time, uh, the esports, you know, uh, for example, people are spending so much time on Twitch right now, and right. Uh, they are actually uh, creating those competitions and uh, people go to venues with large screens just like you would go to a basketball game but they would they would go to a venue and uh, watch you know several players uh, just you know plug away in the Fortnite battle or something like that uh, just to see you know who wins and you know they root for this guy or for that guy whether it's you know ninja or I mean that, that's pretty much my extent uh, uh, of the knowledge <laughs> for the uh, Fortnite or you know twitch but uh, w- why I'm saying that is this is the competition for the uh, real sports because it's the attention, right? Uh, there's only so much time people have. And uh, if uh, the generation that is growing up, uh, they care about the real sports less and less, uh, I would assume that a 19-year-old would play a lot more, uh, would spend a lot more time on Twitch. I- I'm talking average, right? Average right. 19-year-old would spend... Um, a lot more time on Twitch, uh, watching Fortnite players, you know, fight in the battle than, you know, sit through a baseball game and kind of watch the grass grow, right? Uh, right. And so all that said, if the experience of using apps is not great, then it's just one more reason not to uh, get engaged into uh into that entertainment uh, industry. And, you know, because I would assume that, you know, Twitch is, I've never actually visited it. I've never watched anybody play on Twitch, Uh, but I would assume it's designed very well and, you know, very easy to use um, because it's it's built by smart people, you know, progressively thinking people while, uh, you know, NFL and NBA and whatnot apps are maintained by, you know, traditionally, you know, mindseted, designers and people who don't really you know care about the ux right much right. so uh that that uh not not only the ux might be the the problem uh it's probably it's, it's probably already uh contributing to the loss of uh, viewership because i mean between popularity of esports and uh pretty bad usability of uh, the tools that exist for the traditional sports industry. Uh, right. I think that's just a perfect storm. Well, and esports to that point is booming, right? Yeah, I was just reading an article. Um, I think it was from, uh, might have been VentureBeat.com. 
that was talking about uh, how they had something crazy like 190 million hours of live viewership uh, on Twitch and YouTube. Oh, it's crazy. Um, yeah, it's it's just the and how that's rising. You know, that's the you know, that was up. You know, something like seven or eight percent from the last year. And and you know, kind of looking at uh, you know the different esports that are out there. Uh, that's where the threat is going to come from. It's not going to be from another, uh, you know, major sport taking a rise. It's not going to come from soccer. Um, it's not going to come from, uh, you know, curling or anything like that. Uh, it's going to come from, you know, these esports competitors who uh, are gaining that larger market share in the younger generation uh, and also have the the edge in terms of uh, design and, and a user-centered focus. Um, and so that's where, you know, the NFL is going to be losing its attention, isn't going to be to uh, another what we think of as a traditional major sports league, but it's going to be from those esports. Um, so, you know, that's one of those things that, uh, you know, it's already a big business. It's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, and, you know, for for the enterprising amongst uh, the the up and coming UX professionals, uh, that's one of those industries that's. Uh, uh, if you're going to get into something, now's the time to get into it. Yeah, absolutely crazy how the world is changing. And uh, we can talk about that for probably another hour easily. But uh, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll probably start wrapping up here uh, so people don't get too bored. Um, I mean, <laughs> hopefully it will, uh, it's been a pretty interesting discussion. I mean, at least I enjoyed it uh, enormously. Um, so... Uh, Doug, anything else that you think we, uh, you know, should have uh, discussed, or any, you know, tips, recommendations for the listeners? Um, I mean, a- anything you want to say as we are uh, probably gonna, you know, wrap up at this point? Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you taking some time with me. Thank you very much. It's been great to be on here. I've I've enjoyed the discussion uh, as well. I hope everybody else listening uh, out there in your car at home, wherever you might be, I, I certainly appreciate you tuning in. Uh, to to listen to us and and, and hope you'll uh, you know catch this podcast going down the road. Uh, you, you know, uh, you know uh, I had a chance to listen to things with Oksana earlier, and that sounded great. And hopefully, this will be just as good. And I'm sure you'll have uh, you know quite a few more great guests coming on. So that's uh, uh, definitely superb. You know, the only other thing I, I'd say is uh, you know for for the people out there that are you know, sort of in the world and struggling with, uh, you know, maybe I don't know as much as I should, or maybe I'm not where I should be. Stay strong. Uh, you know, know that uh, that you are talented, that you are skilled, and, and that uh, your opinion absolutely counts and, and, and matters. And for those that are just coming in that aren't sure if this is right for you, uh, keep going. Uh, we uh, thrive, I think, as an industry based off of the wide variety of people that get in uh, to the world of UX um, and, and bringing those different perspectives uh, different life lessons, uh, different learnings available to us. Uh, and and we are better as an industry for having you as a part of it. So thank you all very much uh, for taking some time to listen to me today and, and to listen to us. And and uh, certainly if there's anything I can do to help you out, uh, I want to help out as much as I can. You can find me on Twitter um, at Doug Collins UX, D-O-U-G-C-O-L-L-I-N-S-U-X. Um, my website's uh, denveruxer.com. You can send me an email, Doug at denveruxer.com. Um, but however you choose to connect with me, um, I, I want to help you out and I want to do whatever I can for you. So please feel free to reach out. And I'm, I'm always happy and willing to give a hand. 
That's a great ending, Doug. I could not say that better. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, sir. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. I learned a ton, uh, like seriously a ton um, by talking to you. Um, and uh, so for everybody uh, who is listening, uh, thank you so much. I, I don't take your time for granted. And uh, it's been a pleasure uh, recording this for you guys. Um, have a good night and uh, or good morning. I mean, depending on your time zone or good day. And uh, I'll be working hard to you know produce more uh, of uh, such content for you guys. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you.